Welcome to Voices in Health Law, a podcast from the ADA Health Law section. I'm Elizabeth Green, and I have the privilege of co-chairing the Physician Legal Issues and Innovation Conference that will be in September in person in Chicago. We have with us today, Elaine Zacharakis. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about our upcoming conference. Thank you, Elizabeth, and thanks for including me on this. And I'm excited to be back in Chicago because I spent um, most of my career in Chicago, actually. So before we get started talking about your panel and session, which I am very excited about, I want to tell our audience just a little bit about you. First of all, congratulations. I understand last week you took your oldest child off to college for the first time. Yes, I did. And and then my daughter, my youngest, just got her driver's license. So a lot of transitions on a personal front. And you've been practicing in the area of corporate and regulatory health law with a focus on privacy and information technology for a long time. That's right. Yes. But in fact, you started out with an engineering degree from Columbia University. Yes, that's right. In, in New York. And, and, then, and then I moved to the Midwest later. Yeah. And so before you moved to the Midwest, were you working in the software industry as in management information systems and whatnot? Yeah, so I actually had an engineering degree, and then right out of college, I worked for what's now Accenture as a management information systems consultant. So I have a computer background um, and a technology background before going to law school. So that kind of helps me with these IT contracts because I can talk, I have like weekly meetings with my clients, IT officers, IT security officers, and I can kind of bridge the gap between the technology and the legal, which I can enjoy. That's kind of my sweet spot is how those two areas intersect. That's terrific to have that background in the work that you're doing. So after doing that work, you went on to law school? Yeah. So I went out to law school and I became a healthcare lawyer and, and started off doing a lot of managed care work. And then I switched my career into working with hospital clients on their technology agreements. And I was in a crossover group of, um, it was Gardner, Carton and Douglas at the time, and now it's merged into Fagery Drinker. And I was in the healthcare department, which at the time was one of the recognized departments. And one of the partners I was working with is an information technology attorney and trained me initially on doing IT agreements. And she's the one who convinced me to, to have my own practice and kind of serve as a consultant, um, which has worked out well for me. And we've worked together. She's working together with me on um, one of my health system clients. And I, for many years, worked for one of her clients who was an IT provider for health plans. So we've had a nice informal relationship where we've worked together a lot on um, different contracts over many years, um, starting back from, from those days at Gardner, Carton and Douglas. Terrific experience to have. And you have your own firm, is that right? That's right. I have my own firm, but I, I actually work with, I think now five other, six other, um, other independent contractors. So when I get busy, I have backup attorneys. So right now I have four working for me on one of my clients. And then I also do work for other attorneys when when they have work where they need my expertise. So a lot of times I, I get brought in by healthcare attorneys who need that bridge between someone that can really understand 
the technology issues on something that they're working on. And even I've worked for smaller firms that don't even have the HIPAA expertise. So I've been brought in over the years. And even with my teaching, like I would have students of mine who would work at a firm, took my course and would bring me in to consult with their law firm to, um, to help some, so other law firms end up being technically clients. So I do work for for their clients a little bit indirectly and provide like my little niche of expertise. And so speaking of your teaching, you've been super active over the years as an adjunct law professor. When I was in Chicago and and I kind of, at that time I had young children, I had downshifted my career. It really allowed for me to keep up with the substance of the law. So I was teaching both at Loyola, which was um, a health law program and um, and I was teaching there some healthcare courses. Uh, the um, director of the program actually took a year leave of absence to go to a big firm, and I taught his courses that semester. And that was when I was pregnant with my second child and after I had my first. And then I continued to teach there for, I think, 12 years. And then there was an attorney that I had worked with, also at Gardner, Curtin, and Douglas, who became the head of, of the cyber program at Winston, and she brought me in to teach at John Marshall Law School, where I ended up teaching a a number of classes, starting off with HIPAA. I taught HIPAA at both schools and kind of a a global health privacy class. And then I taught other courses that were more geared towards um, information technology at at John Marshall and then um, more towards healthcare at Loyola. So at Loyola, there would be master's students who were healthcare professionals um, getting a master's in law, also JD students and LLM students. And similarly at John Marshall, they were more information technologists, um, like computer people who would keep me up on the technology. And similarly, like some of them were master's students who were going at night and they would bring such a wealth of knowledge on both the master's students at both the programs because there were a lot of, in the North Shore of Chicago, a lot of pharma companies. So I would have students who were professionals at these programs that would engage in really lively discussions. So I really enjoyed the teaching. And the program that I'm teaching now in New York is a a new program. It's it's, um, a biotechnology management and entrepreneurship program, which has been, which is a really interesting program. I like the entrepreneurial part of the program. And I even sat in on a professor's course on finance, on financing for startups, which, which was really fun for me. And it's, it's a new program. And I had actually a lot of students who were taking gap years during COVID doing the online program before they went to medical school. So, and I taught like an overview compliance class and and I'm still teaching that course now. Well, I think we're very lucky to have you on a panel for our physician legal issues conference with all this teaching expertise that you have. The Mm -hmm. way that you and I actually met was through the ABA health law section. Right. Yeah. And you've had a number of leadership positions in the health law section, and thank you so much for your leadership in the section. We got to know each other when you started a working group to address the interplay between information blocking and the HIPAA privacy and security regulations. Right. And and that kind of led to what you're going to talk about at the Physician Legal Issues Conference, right? Right, right. So yeah, let me give you a little bit of background on kind of how that all came about and a little bit of background on on my role within the ABA. So I started off in the ABA as a young lawyer in the young lawyer section, which I encourage young lawyers to join. Um, 
I think I still have a lot of friends from the ABA from my years at the Young Lawyers, and those friendships form early and stay strong throughout your career. So Shannon Hartsfield and I um, were in that group, and Clay Countryman, um, who are, Clay Countryman's head of the section, and Shannon's been a integral part of the health law section for many years. She's a former chair of eHealth Privacy and Security. I am, and then. Heather Dykesler, who is with a recent partner now with Latham and Watkins, she is the was I think the last chair before the current chair for eHealth Privacy and Security. So I put together the committee with them and others that I've known for years, where we specialize. And Shannon and I will ask each other questions all the time for years and years um, on these intersections of these HIPAA issues because. As much as we've worked, we've both worked with HIPAA, there's always a nuance that we come up with that's new. And and this interplay with the interoperability regulations, there is a lot there. So the way it came about, and and this kind of involves the third speaker who's going to be on our panel, is I'm doing work right now for a health system and doing their IT contracts. And I work closely with their security officer on these agreements. And there's a vendor assessment process that the security officer does to make sure that vendors who are going to intersect with our with the systems that they have certain encryption and certain HIPAA security requirements. And then I deal with it in the agreement perspective. So obviously most of us know you need a business associate agreement if there's a entity that performs a service on your behalf. You need to have a business associate agreement. And all of those business associates for my client and for other clients that I've had, including like big companies, they have a vendor assessment process where they review what the vendor has. Do they have proper encryption, authentication, all of the, and then they look at how they're intersecting with the health system systems. So sometimes the way Epic, Meditech, and a lot of these EMRs work, sometimes you'll have a billing company that might be using it or different ways. So what happened um, that kind of prompted this working group was we had our client was looking at vendors that could potentially help with providing better access to patients through these patient medical vendors. So they started to look at different vendors they could use. Well, one of the vendors, and if the hospital is engaging the vendor, they would be a business associate. But there's also, through this new system that the government's planning, is that there are patient medical record companies that basically are serving the patient. So if a patient wants to use a Google app or Apple app and connect into their systems, that they should be able to do it. What gets tricky from a legal perspective is they're not a business associate. So what happened with this one vendor is I, she started talking she, and went through this whole exercise. Well, I shouldn't be a business associate because I represent the patients, but really she was, it was a tool that we were gonna use is why we had engaged her. But then I said, well, this makes sense because we have for, for, for payers or other covered entities under HIPAA, we have what's called the data use agreement, which isn't a legally, prescribed document, but it's a business document to make sure that all the privacy and security issues are addressed. And and so that's a document that we've created. So I created a special document for her. And she said, that's information blocking. You can't make me do this. 
accepted. So then I call my friends at the ABA, Shannon, Heather, others, and they're like, yeah, no, you totally can. We think you can. And so the woman said, well, I'm going to report you to the government. And we said, well, first of all, there's no enforcement right now, but we're still all working this through. We want, we have no intention of blocking any patients. We want to provide patients access, but we care about security. And she said, well, you should talk to Devin McGraw because she's on this group called the Care Alliance. And I've known Devin McGraw for years. She had a very high position in HHS. And, and, and actually, coincidentally, I was on a HIMSS committee where there was an email circulated and she responded. So when I saw her name pop up on my computer, I said, oh, Devin, I'd like to talk with you. And so we had a call and we talked about this. And I said, well, let me introduce you to my friends at the ABA, because I think we can have a really substantive discussion about this, because I think there's issues from what we see as having done this for years and years in terms of how we think privacy and security should fit in with this interoperability. And I'm not really in line with this woman who says she knows you. And she said, oh, you know, the way she knows me is through this care alliance, but she's not a lawyer. Um, she's just the person who developed the software. So I'll talk to her. So that's kind of how the working group started. And from being on the committee, you could see how we had, you know, a some robust discussions, very collegial, but it was, there were a lot of things. And, and this happens whenever you have new regulations, a lot of times is that you know, the government is thinking, and we actually brought into our working group three very high level people from the government. And they all said, you know, Elaine, this was kind of decided. So, and, and what they were all saying is that the government made a decision that the right to access takes priority over security. And I think where I was debating them is I think you can have security and still provide the right to access. And that I think it's a mistake for the government to say, that security sh should come behind the right to access. I think you need to do both. And I think you can do both because we do do both, but you have to do it right. And I think in this environment that we have, where you have so many major data breaches within the healthcare industry, you've had so many of the big players on the health plan side getting hacked, as well as many health systems. So you have Columbia University in New York, a physician connects a personal server and all of a sudden records are exposed on the internet and HHS goes after them. You have Anthem, which infiltrated a hacker who was a foreign hacker, basically infiltrated the Blue Cross Blue Shield systems and Anthem. And so a major significant breach of healthcare data overseas and then you have, like to mention, like what's happening on the global front, where you have the Russians, the Chinese, all wanting to hack our systems in one way or another, where it's an international issue. I have one of my cousins is the CEO of a security company. And he said, and, and we talked about, it, he's like, yeah, the Chinese and, and the Russians, you really have to watch with the, with the security issues. So when you're in that environment, and plus, I mean, HHS has that HIPAA security is one of the top enforcement areas, as is the HIPAA right to access. So for health systems, you're really in a tough spot because you have the right to access, which is important, and you want to give patients that right to access. You have 
that you need to really be careful that you have all the security and that you don't make mistakes so you don't have a data breach, but you need to make sure that you've got it all right. And I think that the way these regs are coming out with the priority being the right to access, you can't ignore that security piece. And I think that's what we brought into that working group, a number of security professionals. One, he calls himself a professional hacker, but he does everything, you know, he's, he's contracted to do it. So basically he does what we call penetration testing, but you could call him a professional hacker, but he tries to infiltrate systems, including these big health systems. So what does that say in terms of, you know, not prioritizing security? You need to prioritize security, but you need to provide the right to access. So our working groups had a lot of very interesting discussions, and we brought in people from the Care Alliance who talked about what they're doing with their records and their approach to it to provide a very robust, and I actually love what these medical records companies are doing because they're really providing a service for the patient where the patient, whether they go to different hospitals, it's not just looking at the one hospital's health system, they can get their information from the one hospital and get it to the others. I think that's a great tool. And I think that 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 makes sense because you want to have information being user friendly, but I think you really, really have to be careful. And I think from the policy committee for the ABA and the discussion I'd like to have is how do we make sure that we're doing both in the right way? And the other part of it is, and I think this is a big part from a policy perspective, is this is a huge loophole in HIPAA because once the patient gives that information to one of these companies, those companies are not covered under HIPAA. So guess what? Now, all of a sudden, just like we had years ago, like a lot of state government, we don't have a federal privacy law. And there's a lot of talk about, and our policy committee is, is reviewing a lot of these federal privacy legislations, just like the rest of the world. It's not, in, in the US, we have a sectorial approach where we're regulating the industry, but in the rest of the world, health information is protected because of the type of information it is. It doesn't work that way in the United States, and that's a big issue. So that's kind of a highlight of what, what we've been working on. And so out of attending these meetings that I joined in on, I've gotten to know you and learned so much about these issues and then approached you to potentially speak at the PLI conference. And so who are you bringing from this committee to talk with us at the conference in a few weeks in September in Chicago? So, and as I mentioned, Devin McGraw, who is, who's got a wealth of experience. She's worked with high level positions within the government. And she has been for decades, like one of the experts in this area. It's been fascinating for me to be in these discussions with her. Heather Dykesler, who is also going to be a speaker, is a partner at Latham and Watkins. And we've worked together, you know, both the, she was one of my vice chairs on e-health privacy and security. And we've been talking and I've been running things by her that I've been working on. And we kind of see things in the same way because we're used to working in the same way. So I think it's really interesting, the discussions we've been having back and forth with Devin, because I've learned a lot and it's been really fun. And you've probably seen from those working group meetings, like we've really gotten some really interesting discussions where we both have sort of approached things differently by having those conversations 
and by not being siloed. And I think that's one of the values of having an organization like the ABA, where you can have professionals who are coming at things from different perspectives, and especially with a new law, being able to sit there and have these discussions and have different speakers to understand and learn from each other where, as opposed to being in it, just in a negotiation, but where we can really think of it from a policy perspective and what are we doing and does this make sense for the industry and for everyone's benefit to kind of get this right. Yeah, the energy in those working group meetings was really exciting and interesting and and hearing the passion from both sides of the perspective is something that we're very excited to be bringing to the PLI conference. You've talked a few times about e-health and privacy and for those who don't know, health law section has a number of of the ABA has a number of interest groups. And so one of them is the e-health and privacy interest group. How would someone get involved with the e-health and privacy interest group if they're interested in these issues as you're speaking about? So the ABA has a website that if you search for ABA health law section, they'll have a list of the interest groups and you can message us through that platform to reach out and, and then we can involve you in the different committees. So, and we encourage, especially a lot of young lawyers, we've been looking for young lawyers to bring into the committee. And I encourage a lot of young lawyers to join the ABA because what you can do is, and it's basically what I did, is there's the young lawyers division, which we call the YLD, and you can work, be part of the YLD and maybe be the the liaison to one of these other committees. And there are certain roles that we give to young lawyers so that they can learn the ropes and learn the organization. And also we we do a publication called HL Bytes, which is kind of a current newsy type of email that the ABA sends out. And we have a lot of young lawyers working on those for us. That's that's when we when I was chair, we used young lawyers. But I encourage a lot of young lawyers to join our committees and and all lawyers do, um, and and everyone in between. But um, I've been fortunate to be involved with the ABA. And I think it's very supportive of professionals in letting you grow and allowing you to kind of continue to learn um, as you progressed in your career. We are thrilled to be having you and Devin McGraw and uh, Heather Dykesler as our panelists for this program at the Physician Legal Issues Conference. And for anybody who uh, has not yet registered and would like to do so, you can register for the conference at ambar.org forward slash PLI 2022. And we really hope to see many of you at the Physician Legal Issues Conference in September in Chicago. Elaine, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been a terrific conversation and the energy and passion that you bring to e-health and privacy is tremendous. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, for including me. And it's been great having you on our committee as well. And I look forward to continuing to work with you.